You are listening to Ace Comicals. I'm Greg, and today I'm joined by my co-host Rahul. Let's go! Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 75 of Ace Comicals. Um, We didn't do a a, a Halloween episode this year, but here at Ace Comicals, it's kind of always Halloween. Isn't that right, Ray? It's always Halloween when you're around, Greg. You're always around, Greg. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess you could say this is our belated Halloween episode, Sowencast, or Hallows Transmission, whatever you want to call it. Um, Mm. But I don't think... um, I mean... Yeah, I'm sad that I didn't get to do a Halloween episode, but at the same time, things happen. So, And we're constantly talking about horror comics anyway. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. At yeah. the same time, it's always Halloween on Ace Comicals. So, how have you been, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> I've been good. I'm riding... Uh, what's the opposite of riding high? I'm riding low off of a DIY failure today, so... Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to put up a curtain pole, and it all went wrong. The curtain pole's too big for the wall, Um uh, which isn't entirely my fault. I made it to order, and it seems yeah. like they've delivered the wrong bits or something. I'm sure it's fine. I just need to take a break from it, and instead, I sat down and read a comic for today. So it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's just I've yeah. got this like specter of a curtain pole just hanging in the corner, just, just mocking me. I'm just imagining you sitting there, like just kind of a little bit deflated with this wonky curtain pole that doesn't quite fit, kind of like <laughs> half hanging off the wall. Yeah, this is there, my Halloween. This yeah. is my Halloween horror story <laughs> with your comic. <laughs> covered in like uh plasterboard dust that's, yeah that's not too far off from the truth greg yep <laughs> <laughs> oh well let's see what's Other than going that, on. i'm great how are you yeah. i'm good i'm good um <laughs> i've uh i've been on holiday and came back in between mm. episodes i had like a little short break i went to budapest and got my um my uh, uh godzilla tattoo on the back of my leg finished um and we um just kind of hung out like didn't really do like a lot of touristy stuff because i've been to the city before so we've seen a lot of it so it Mm. was like a kind of a hangout thing where we were just sort of like hanging out and catching up with sophie's friends um and it was good it was it was good fun it was a nice break um and then i came back and then i've been back to work and in between that i have just been just at home chilling reading comics doing my usual greg stuff uh we did halloween we decorated the house i made pumpkins and all that stuff but it's kind of a quiet one this year Mm. um went out on friday evening because they were doing this um this halloween party at a bar in leicester called ton um and it was like um it was harry potter themed but it was just a general Halloween party. Um, and I went as a death eater, which, Oh, nice. Yeah. So I had like a big black robe and a mask and a wand. And Sophie went as Sabrina, the teenage witch. I saw the photos. You guys were, it was really on point. It's a really good costume. Yeah. uh, And, and the best thing about the the thing about that Sabrina costume is it didn't, I mean, mine, I I had to pay money for some of the stuff, but that didn't cost her a penny because she had all that stuff in her wardrobe already. (laughs) yes that's fair it's like yeah. a headband a black dress yeah yeah um this yeah. is netflix sabrina i'm talking by the way 
Mm, so she yeah. went as Netflix Sabrina. Um, yeah, and it, it was just it was a fun night, um, and I was a little bit hungover uh, yesterday, Saturday. Uh, but yeah, that's it. That's that's how my Halloween week went. It was a quiet one, and I read a lot of horror comics and stuff in between. Um, and then uh, I've got a few things that I've picked out here to talk about today. So, um, I mean, Ray, do you want to kick us off with something, or shall I kick us off? Who's I can kick first? us off. I'll I'll go first because um, yeah. so this is this is a book that I just read today. In fact, I wanted to read something relatively light, um, and you know me, I always want to read something cute. So I picked up this uh, relatively short book uh, called Anya's Ghost by Vera Broskel. This is published by First Second Publishing. Um, I think they're the same publishing studio. Well, I think they are the same publishing studio who published American Born Chinese, which we talked about in episode 71. That's a book by Gene Yang. And they also published Demon um, by Jason Shiga, which I talked about in episode 15, way back in episode 15. Um, So this book, the plot of this book is relatively simple. Uh, We follow this young girl, Anya, a young angsty Russian teenager who is somewhat lazy, um, obsessed with her weight, obsessed with not appearing too Russian, obsessed with boys, and seems determined to hate everyone for no good reason, including herself. And so while she's angrily pining over a crush, she accidentally falls down a well and meets the ghost of a young girl who died 90 years prior, around the time of World War One. Um, and like, Anya seems to be determined to be hostile to everyone in her life, up to and including this sweet, polite and like heartbreakingly lonely ghost uh, of this girl called Emily, who had um, who's been stuck in this well since her death, since she can't move far from her you know, decrepit bones. And um, upon Anya's eventual rescue from the well by uh, two horny teenage boys who only rescue her because she sounds hot. And this is a running theme in this, theme in this book in that most teenage boys are horny, self-serving, and all-round terrible, which sounds about right, really. Um, and she finds that she's accidentally scooped up the, uh, the haunted finger bone of Emily. And along with it, uh, she's brought along Emily's ghost. So... While Anya initially, and to me, like, kind of inexplicably finds Emily a chore and wants to get rid of her, which is wild to me, because, like, if you could have this amazing new experience and, like, make friends with this friendly ghost, why wouldn't, why would you hate it? Anyway, she eventually warms to her, and they become friends. Um, And Anya allows Emily to experience the world that she's missed out on, and Emily helps Anya, like, cheat at tests and win the attention of uh, this boy that she likes and all these other fun little things. And... so what this allows is some really tender moments between a girl and her new best, like, spectral friend and an exploration of the things that they enable in each other, which, you know, be they good and bad, and the ways in which this new relationship emboldens uh, emboldens some of the worst parts of Anya and her behavior to her, her friends and her family and her peers, etc. And then it ultimately also finds itself in a surprisingly scary and, like, heartbreaking place. And plays with some really fun ghostly mechanisms, which I, I think wouldn't feel out of place in something like a Ghostbusters comic, for example. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really. I think you'd. I think you'd like where it goes, and I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything. I think you should read it. But um, so the artwork, it's all done in this wonderful white, grey, and deep blue palette um, with these really thick black lines, chunky bold lettering, and like clean contrast, particularly between like 
the the humans barely painted blue faces and the ghosts like spectral stark white visage um we never really see things directly from anya's point of view instead we get a lot of time looking directly at anya's face as she's processing these events that are happening around her and like these moments of thought are given really nice dedicated space uh, multiple panels reflecting like the flurry of, uh, flurry of emotions in a few brief moments. Um, the character designs are clean but very expressive. Vera does really great work with body language in this book. I think throughout the entire thing, there are some moments close to the end where a character's sudden shift in posture signals how they're feeling, and like just the general closed offness that, um, like you know, uh, of, of an awkward teenage girl is expressed during a party. And I think that kind of stuff comes off the page really well. Um, I want to point out some really cool moments. So I'm trying to t- pay more attention in these comics to things that can really only work in this medium. So my comic moments for this book that I picked out are one, the moment where she falls down the well. Hmm. So she's distracted by all these thoughts of uh, like her slightly nagging mum and the uh, her slightly nagging best friend and like, having just seen the boy she has a crush on kissing this girl that she has no reason to hate, but hates anyway, purely because she's that guy's girlfriend. Um, so the, like the cacophony of Anya's thoughts lead to her falling down this inexplicably like deep open hole in the middle of the woods. Um, but it's really interesting because like uh, it, her thoughts clutter the frame and like um, compress around her and become really claustrophobic. And then all of a sudden they're left at the surface at the top of the page as she falls down the hole. I thought that was a really effective moment. And like immediately after we get the slow awakening in the dark after having been, you know, knocked out from the fall and like this um, slowly, slowly building light from like dark to brightness as she discovers where she's at. And then Later on, right at the other end of the book, there's a moment where she goes to the library to try and find some articles on microfilm. And she has this big discovery at the end of the book where um, the background is suddenly filled with the words and margins and like this uh, viewpoint of the newspaper articles in the background where the story that she's discovering is told in silent vignettes scattered around the page on top of it. I thought that was really, uh, really great. Um, and yeah, there's moments like this scattered throughout the book. There's some really effective moments of just these things that could only be done in comics. Um, so ultimately, I, I picked up the book expecting a short, cute, mildly Halloween-related story because it's about a girl and her ghost buddy. And instead, what I got was, much like American Born Chinese, um, it's actually a look into the immigrant experience, this unexplored self-hatred that comes with it because Anya is... A, a Russian girl and her mother brought her from Russia to America when she was very young. Um, and it's it's also an exploration of like the relative experiences of other foreigners, be they other Russians like Anya's school friend or her mother who were less naturalized to America or the spirit of this ghost whose last experience of the world was 90 years ago. So Emily's ghost affords a really interesting foreigner's viewpoint so like much like an immigrant who is quotes fresh off the boat which is something Anya is very quick to accuse others of um her being uh you know being able to pass as a quote-unquote normal American teenage girl um Emily the ghost Emily she marvels at not only the, the modern day which you know she didn't get to see progress like having been trapped in that well for 90 years um but modern day America specifically, she 
falls into the ideas of love and attraction promised by these teenage magazines that Anya gives her. She attempts to live vicariously through Anya, not only to resolve these unfulfilled and unlived moments from her, you know, upsettingly short life, but also to meet the expectations of a modern culture obsessed teenager. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is basically a recipe for disaster. And that's where the book goes. Um, The book does remind me of American born Chinese, but it isn't quite as focused on the traumas, pitfalls and unfortunate self-loathing of otherness of being othered. It still goes to those places, but it kind of glances off them occasionally within the framework of how difficult adolescence is in general. I think Mm. Um, it's more a part of the tapestry of Anya's overall self-discovery of like being a teenage girl while not really being a core of the core theme of the piece. Mm. Um, But overall I'd recommend it as a really fun light read with some of these nuanced looks into what it means to be uh, somewhat of an outsider and to have um, this kind of, I guess, kind of shitty view of uh, people who are in essentially in the same position as you, but a few years behind. Like her, yeah. one of her school friends who is also Russian is constantly trying to make friends with her and, you know, is one of the, the most wonderful kids in this entire book. But she constantly brushes him off because she doesn't want to be seen, you know, with another fob, with another fresh off the boat. And uh, yeah, uh, I think it's it's a really good mixing of all these different things. And um, the place that Emily's ghost story goes to is also really interesting and has a nice twist and everything. So yeah, super recommend it. That is Anya's Ghost, and it's by Vera Broskol. I think that was published back in two thousand and eleven. Yeah, um, that sounds pretty cool. Actually, I want to check that. I mean, I like the um the idea of that well moment mm. um that you the, the the page there that you described because i can imagine like um the thought process there is like all she's thinking about at that point is oh hell i'm falling <laughs> and everything else just gets left behind because that's all secondary to the fact that she's falling down the well and i like how that might play out yeah this is what i mean like yeah. uh, it's definitely a comic book only sort of moment i mean yeah I like to think that it, I mean, it's maybe it's something that could be expressed in film order, but it's one of those things that I thought, wow, that's, that's only really given the space to breathe on the page in a comic that way. Cause you get to see her thoughts be left behind as she drops to the bottom of this, like really deep. Well, it's a really interesting moment. And yeah, there's, there's loads of that in this book. I think, I think, I think I need to check it out purely for that. <laughs> if not anything yeah, if not the rest of it, cause it does sound brilliant. Also um, some really funky ghost moments towards the yeah. end, which I think you'd really like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah i mean that that sounds great i mean i'm gonna just dive in and just mention a couple of things that i've been reading recently because i just wanted to say and i wanted to say it out loud on this podcast that that hickman has fixed x-men he's fixed it (laughs) (laughs) well okay so elaborate on that please because i haven't read any of the new powers of x or yeah uh, so like books i've been really enjoying house of x and powers of x and um, I've been really enjoying the fruits of House of X and Powers of X so far. These new series that have come spinning out of it um, that kind of explore and explain Krakoa further and everything else and sort of explain the different um, groups at work on the, on Krakoa. Uh, and we've got like uh, Marauders, which was great fun. Um, Kitty Pride might not be a mutant. Mm. We don't know. She can't use the gates, which is why she has to set it on a boat to get to Krakoa um she has to steal a boat and then um yeah it, it's just fun it's just a fun fun comic uh X-Men number one was really awesome 
And it feels so good to actually be able to enjoy and follow X-Men continuity again. Like, Hickman mm. has cleaned it up and organized it without sweeping everything under the carpet, which I love. And it's fun, it's compelling, and it's a breath of fresh air. It sounds like between Grand Design and this, it's a really good place to jump in. Yeah, this is this is like, that's, that is exactly what it was designed as. It's designed as a jumping on point for people to enjoy X-Men. And fans new and old can get on this train and still have a great experience because you don't you don't have to know everything about x-men history in order to enjoy it because it acknowledge it, it does i mean we talk about this a lot on this where we get new number ones that acknowledge the past but mm. also you know usher in a new era and do it in a really really balanced and good way well this i think this is like the um this this hits the golden ratio Mm. so and and if you don't have the history if you don't know it all then you can always refer to grand designs which is a really good yeah cliff notes to getting well, up to speed with the history yeah of and yeah definitely so speaking of, what speaking was of the grand state design, of oh. x-men um before the hickman run because you were saying that hickman's really cleaned it up well like there was just like there was an awful lot going on um i think they'd attempted to restart x-men a couple of years ago, you had like X Men Blue, X Men Gold, you know, like the different, oh. yeah. And okay. I just, I just didn't get on with it. They weren't good comics. It did, just wasn't enjoyable. Um, there was like, basically, there's just so much there, and so much had happened in X Men history that it's just it got to a point where you couldn't really, um, I don't know. I just didn't gel with too many moving parts or too too many many moving. Yeah. Too many moving parts. Yeah. Mm. That's a good way to put it. Too many moving parts, but he kind of, he streamlined it a bit Mm. and he's kind of consolidated those moving parts into, I mean, there's still, there's still a lot of moving parts, but they're bigger and chunkier. Like they're easier to, it's easier to see what fits where, rather than it being a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. It's a six-piece jigsaw puzzle, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of part. There's parts still. There's many parts, but those parts are consolidated into larger parts, so it's easier to deal with, and it kind of makes more sense. Everything makes sense. It's you know, it's good that way. Uh, and, and you mentioned Grand Design. Well, I, I, I we we have Fantastic Four Grand Design now by Tom Skilly and Michael. Yeah, there's, some, yeah. Th- there's something about that which doesn't appeal to me as much. I mean, I guess because I grew up at least watching X Men, the X Men cartoons. I never really yeah. read the comics that much, but like I had, no, I have no affection or affinity for Fantastic Four. So in some way, like in That's some ways, sad, it's great. It's a sad, 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 sad place to be, Ray. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> not having grown up with the classics is my usual yeah but it's not and, and last time you said that's why you appreciate having me on so my <laughs> my point of view on yeah. the fantastic four stuff I is i think mm, oh, sorry, sorry go ahead. i was gonna say i don't think it's not about not growing up with the classics i don't, mm. I don't think it's about that with this i think I, I i feel like this is just something cool to read and obviously it you will learn about the Fantastic Four. It's the Fantastic oh, Four. No, no, no. Let, let, let me let me make my yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, um, 
I'm, I, I'm in two minds about this, because one, I don't have any affinity for the Fantastic Four to want to learn their history or have it refreshed. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be refreshed. It would be yeah. for the first time. It wouldn't be a refresher. However, because I don't have... I have very little knowledge of the Fantastic Four, except for the movies that had, um, you know, the ones from the 2000s with Captain America in them. Um, uh, I think it would be a good place for me to jump in and actually get caught up. So, like, it would be nice to see how, with x-men grand designs i got a great refresher and it filled in like it filled in all the cracks of my knowledge because yeah i knew a lot about x-men but i didn't know all the comic book history of x-men yeah um whereas this would be like i want to see how different it is from literally you know the ground up uh, yeah knowledge filling so yeah well, i think i'll i'll check it out but like yeah. like with everything i'll check it out when the whole book is the finished, whole is like. available yeah. yeah see i i feel like those movies may have only done harm to your perception of the fantastic four oh i have no doubt (laughs) (laughs) and and that may be the reason you feel no affection or affinity because you only know those films yeah quite possibly but yeah um so i mean it's there sitting on my to read stack on my coffee table ready for me to dive into it i've just been Mm. flicking through it actually and it carries the same energy as pisca's work it's dense it's a huge undertaking and it's gorgeous to look at and sioli's work is awesome anyway he's got like this retro old school cartoon work that is to absolutely die for yeah so, i haven't yeah. seen how the artwork is for fantastic four grand designs because i i really loved um who was the artist for the x-men run ed pisker it was ed pisker yeah i really really liked that the yeah. artwork in that and how it harkened back to like the golden age of comics is this yes. this one different or does it like lean to the same thing it's it's leaning in towards the same thing. He's got a Tom scale has got a similar a similar style where he um, he kind of leans heavily into uh, what I will call retro comic art. So we're talking about right. like um, if you imagine some of the uh, the Jack Kirby stuff and things like that. He kind of leans heavily into that um, era, if mm. you will, and he, he he excels at making things look. Um, like you've bought them off the shelf and they are old kind of thing mm. so yeah he's he, that's his thing like he may, he has this like retro cartoon style this cartoon style that is a carries a reverence for everything that came before him and is kind of a nod to all of that what um, kind of decade do you think that is is it going for like the 60s 70s era or is it more 80s 90s i think it's going for the 60s 70s because I mean, the reason I asked that is because maybe a... maybe even the forties and fifties, right? Okay, so yeah, that was yeah. that was going to be my point. Because um, as a quick aside, like I feel like movies and games are like for a while, movies have been appealing to the eighties uh, stuff, like Stranger Things and you know all these eighties um, aesthetic pieces that we're getting, and I think video games have been doing pixel art for a long time you know appealing to the 8-bit 16-bit eras and we're slowly getting into the 90s i think in tv as well we're slowly getting more towards the 90s as well like that kind of yeah um uh what's the word like that kind of is that is that uh, 30 year rule it is the 30 year rule that's that's what i was going to get at the 30 year rule and it's interesting that comic books aren't quite doing the same thing because i don't really see many contemporary comics that are looking backwards to the 80s and 90s i think they are still looking back to you know 40s to the 60s era i just think that's interesting i don't really i haven't like i don't have deep thoughts on well, it it's just uh, you know. i think this or is that be, not true well no i mean 
it is that it happens but like you say probably i mean i i've read i don't know it's like a mixed bag in my experience there's like a bit of everything but i think mm-hmm. i think people with with comics is is people look back on the products of the 90s and the late 80s with less fondness mm-hmm. <laughs> they do with like because you get all this uh all this stuff about the dark age of comics and everything else as everyone's talking about like um everyone i mean you, you know like huge muscles millions of pouches grimdark storylines mm-hmm. all that stuff like late 80s early 90s comics and whatever that a lot of people they look back on it and they think okay yeah this isn't great yeah, because I, I mean, I mean, I'm definitely no comic historian, so correct me if I'm wrong. But like, there was a there was a comics like burst bubble around that era, whereas I think there was a technological boom in movies and games around the 80s and 90s. So the I guess bubble, that, that... yeah, because 90s. I think, I mean, I, I'm I'm not like a, I'm I'm not a comics historian either, Ray. But um, <laughs> I think the like towards the back end of the 90s is when the bubble burst. Mm, because right. you had you had like all these like they were bringing out all these comics in the 90s and they were like oh here's this collector's edition and you know this you know, these these action figures that came out in the 90s that were they promised to be that you know they had the promise of being a collector's item on the box mm. and it'd be sold in a comic book store and you'd buy it and you'd sit on it and then like it's worth like shrapnel now kind of thing <laughs> so because they're mass produced but yeah i mean it's just that that was the bubble in the 90s when they were selling an awful lot of comics but i don't know it was just it's a weird time mm. um, interesting to see where that goes and if yeah. we'll ever get to that that aesthetic again um yeah <laughs> i think i i don't i don't think we will it's like it's like um <laughs> i'd like to think we wouldn't it's like with games i'd like to think we wouldn't go back to the ps1 days it's happening though. We do get some. Uh, we're, yeah. we're starting to get some stuff on. Yeah. Um, on like Steam at least, but, where it's harkening back to that fuzzy, fuzzy yeah. edge, like really badly aliased polygonal yeah, style. But it's ugly as hell. It is ugly as hell, but I think it comes with a bit of like uh, charm. Yeah, but I mean, at least you know you can make you can make like sprites. I've always been a champion of the sixteen-bit era, thirty-two-bit sprites and stuff because you can make them look pretty. I do agree. I, I agree with you. But, like, I, it's hard to go back and play PlayStation One games for me personally. Yeah, at least, like, same. I know some people are okay with that, but because it's the advent of three D, yeah, it's just it's just a hard yeah, thing to reconcile. Sometimes. Going back and playing Sega Saturn games and PS One games, and and it's the same with reading nineties comics. I think. I think. Mm. I think. I think a lot of comics in the nineties. There are a lot of really good comics from the nineties, but there's a lot of really ugly stuff as well. It's also similarly with the technological. Uh, yeah. viewpoint i think it was the advent of digital art yeah. and that came with a lot of like ugly shininess which people have now perfected with the tech that we have today yeah. you know yeah. with digital painting and whatnot um yeah. yeah i think we've talked about this on a previous cast but yeah that's probably that's probably a factor it is <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah i mean fantastic four grand design go out and buy it <laughs> <laughs> yes sir <laughs> <laughs> anyways um <clears throat> so I'm going to move on to, like, the first thing um, that I wanted to talk about, which was uh, this Death of Superman book. So, we've got Tales from the Dark Multiverse, the Death of Superman. So, I mean, like, last episode, we had Marv on, and we talked about the uh, the Nightfall book. Um, mm-hmm. So, this is, like, the second in the 
Tales from the Dark Multiverse, and uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's uh, a a kind of look into an alternate reality, an Elseworlds tale, if you will, to use the DC vernacular. Um, and um, it's uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, so Tales from the Dark Multiverse: The Death of Superman. Uh, this is written by Jeff Loveness. Pencils by Brad Walker, inks by Drew Hennessy and Norm Ratmond, and this is on pages 22 to 24, page 34, and page 42 and 43. Um, and John Callis is on colours, Clayton Cowles letters this thing. So, um, the first thing about this is it took me back to my childhood bedroom, <laughs> listening to Superman's song by the Crash Test Dummies as a maudlin teenager. Now I just do it as a maudlin adult. <laughs> but uh it's this like it's this slow acoustic ballad that is like a eulogy for superman if superman died and the song itself came out in 1991 superman didn't actually die till 1992 <laughs> so kind of predates it a little bit but it just ha- it's the perfect eulogy for soups and it's weird because by the time i found this superman book it had all come and gone soups had died and come back but like when I originally found this as a teen, but it still hits me. Like as much as my edge lord self would shit on Superman in conversation back then, <laughs> like I, I would say things like he was boring or he's too powerful. But as you get older, mm-hmm. you get wiser, and you start to see it from the other angle. And the other angle is that he has all this power. He has all this. Uh, this you know he could be a god if he wanted to. He doesn't have to. Um, abide by our laws or live within our boundaries but he chooses to and that mm-hmm. is what makes him special and what makes him good because he chooses to um he chooses to limit himself he chooses to hold back chooses to not succumb to the worst things that he could exactly fall into and yes. like uphold his own virtues his own standards yeah yes he chooses to to be better and to to uphold virtues and standards and not fall in, not become this all-powerful omnipotent god that people would fear mm. so this book explores what might have happened had an angry grieving lois lane been given the powers of superman in his absence after his death she manifests her grief and anger as vengeance exacting her judgment and wrath upon the world and seeking what she deems true justice um she's basically her her um her mantra is that superman was too good for the world and that we wasted the gift of superman and he must be avenged the world must be brought to order and made worthy of his sacrifice oh wow um and i i really do like these short snapshots of alternate realities i love getting to see the impact of iconic moments in comic history rewritten and the poss- other possible paths explored it's it's fun for me to just to check this out and to see this stuff like because i mean like i always actually do sit i mean i like this is why i like the marvel what if comics as well because i actually do sit there sometimes and i think okay so so what if uh, this went the other way you know and then getting someone actually write that and draw that for me and put it out in a comic form that i can buy is pretty mm. cool um so Lois becomes the Eradicator. And I really do like the design of the Eradicator. It's this black suit with Superman's torn cape. And she's like perpetually in mourning. And there's a like dripping running Kryptonian symbol of hope on her chest. that's just like dripping down her chest. Like 
I really do like the way this is written and the art is really great. It takes you back in time to see the old character designs from the early 90s with Lex with long ginger locks and a beard. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I introduced Ray to Ginger Lex Luthor before uh, <laughs> before we started recording today. Um, so, Wait, so, before you go on, is this the Apex Lex you were talking about last week? No, this is an Apex Lex. This is Ginger Lex. Oh God! <laughs> All right. This is Lex... say, he, doesn't, he doesn't look very apex. <laughs> no, this is this is Lex in his prime. So um, basically, what happened is um, there were some continuity changes back in like the kind of in the like we're talking like eighties, early nineties, like uh, late eighties, early nineties, um, and. Um, he Lex Luthor had hair for some of these comics. He had a receding hairline. He had ginger hair. He wasn't shown as bold as as normal as usual. Um, and they changed his character slightly. Um, and he was more of a. Um, he went from being like he went from the the mad scientist angle to more of the like uh, corporate villain angle kind of thing. Right. The, yeah. A businessman without a conscience and whatever else mm. um and he basically he ends up um getting cancer and um he decides to fake his own death by crashing a jet in the andes to cover the fact that he's had his brain taken out and put into a cloned body and then passes himself off as his own 21 year old illegitimate son and heir Lex Luthor the second and this is where he gets like the full red of head hair full head of red hair from and everything and like oh yeah he also puts on an Australian accent to pretend <laughs> that he's like someone else um <laughs> this is this is so absurd isn't it yeah it's weird but but yeah anyway so it seems unnecessary but <laughs> yeah on. well anyway like that all goes wrong because his clone because he, he suffers from some disease that only clones have and then uh mm. he makes a deal with a demon and the demon gives him full health and everything and he comes back again with long red hair and a red beard um so that's where Ginger Lex came from. The convoluted history of Ginger Lex. It seems like the least interesting part of this book. <laughs> all, the, all the stuff you said about Lois sounds amazing. Well, this has got this has got nothing. This is like nothing. None of this is explained in this book. This is just stuff that I feel you need to know if you're going to open a book and be confronted with his ginger facade. I see. Okay. Because <laughs> you'll be like, wait, Lex Luthor has a chin beard and hair? When did that happen? He's got like this whole lion thing going on, you know, like wears his hair like a mane. It like molds into his beard. <laughs> so he's Lion Lex. He's not Apex Lex. He is an right. Apex Predator though, because that's what lions are. I saw a comparison <laughs> online saying he looks a little bit like Richard Branson in his prime. Yes. <laughs> kind of. But instead of blonde, it's, it's uh, ginger. Yeah, yes, I, I yeah. kind of see it. Yeah, maybe especially that's what... with the whole like, um, I don't know, was he a good capitalist back then? <laughs> Quote unquote. I don't know, but I mean this. So yeah, it it explores um, this uh, this path with Lois, and she just basically mm -hmm. 
everything that we've just talked about with Superman being the best version of himself and not succumbing to his powers and not being a god, mm. um, Lois ends up succumbing to those powers. And she ends up, like, manifesting her grief and her anger. And, 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 and she she there's this whole like montage section in the comic where it's like Superman went after bank robbers. I'll go after the banks. Hmm. And she starts taking the world apart piece by piece to try. And she, 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 because as a, you know, as a reporter, she would like, um, she would expose these people anyway in the papers, these people that have the, the corporate greed and whatever people that have like done evil, um, through like, um, swindling people out of millions or whatever and all this kind of you know all this kind of stuff that we see in the papers today where bankers are exposed for doing things or whatever and there's there's never Mm. really any real justice comes of it it just happens to come out into the open and these guys go to jail for five years or whatever and that's it Mm. well this is what lois was lois's thing now was i'm going to i'm going to end this i'm going to sort this out so she she's like um she's going after the bankers she's going after the people not rather than just ending the war and destroying the weapons she's going after the people that make the weapons and it it sort of like spirals and spirals and spirals and the world begins to fear her and then towards the end of the book um because like with the comics the death and return of superman superman does actually return but by then by the point superman has returned lois has done so much damage and the world fears her, and then Superman dies again, <laughs> and then she is left as the, you know, the eradicator, and she, this world, with this world that fears her, like, and she is basically a god, she gets to pick and choose who lives and who dies in accordance with how they behave, she's like appointing herself judge, jury, and executioner of everyone in the world, so... Yeah, that's that's. I mean, I, I think I, I I really enjoyed the story actually, in how it explores that. Is it is this story just a part of this one issue, or is it gonna is it gonna continue into any more? No, this is a one a one time thing. Same as the the previous Batman one, right? Yeah, this these are all these thing. are all like one shots. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Am I right in saying that the Marvel what ifs tend to be a bit more comedic or like? Because it sounds like this, uh, the DC stuff, or at least well, the last is... Batman one and this Superman one, uh, this Lewis Lane one, sound like really like dripping with pathos. It is called the Dark Multiverse, right? Uh, so basically, yeah, the point with these is it's not just a, it's like a look at things getting twisted and going wrong. Mm. So it's not just a um, like a, a what if, like it's of... not not it's just not like a Marvel what if. I mean, Marvel what ifs can can get pretty dark as well in okay. places like what if things took a dark term and stuff like that you, you do get those kinds of t- you would but the but this is more what if um rather than like a a, a straight up what if story like you would get with marvel mm. where it, it it might not necessarily take a dark turn like you say it might just be like an alternate telling of a something like something like a, a character cho- makes a different choice and th- events play out differently mm. This is more of a what if, um, like the world, like like it's it's when so the, the easiest way to explain this is in DC the, in the DC mythos uh, when you, you've got all you've got all the universes in the light 
the universe as it should be. And you've also got the dark multiverse, which is kind of like the mirror image of the the the, the normal multiverse. Now, these worlds in the dark multiverse mm. should not be viable. They they shouldn't survive. They should end. But it turns out they had they do survive. And uh, these this is like where things take a dark turn. So with the dark multiverse, it's where things go wrong. Right. And it's everything is about everything. It's about things going wrong. It's where the Batman who laughs comes from because Batman makes the choice to kill the Joker, and that's where things go wrong. Yeah, this sounds really interesting. Like, how how yeah. many more are there going to be in in part of this this run, the Tales from the Dark Multiverse run? I'm not actually sure. I'm just enjoying getting them and letting them like, <laughs> letting them appear in my pull box. So, right. Um, I think the next one is called Blackest Night. So the next one is going to be. Um, to do with the uh the green lantern event green lantern, night. right yeah mm. so that's going to be interesting sounds cool um, yeah but i mean i i, I i've enjoyed the, i have to say i enjoyed this just as much as the nightfall one and i really cannot wait for more of these they're really cool the art is really good in this as well it's a really nice it's really nice to see the old character designs it's great mm. um and like i said i i actually found myself listening to that song the the death of superman <laughs> <laughs> uh, not the, the song's not called the death superman the song's called superman song but um mm. i might actually post a link to it in the show notes it's a good song it's a bit you know it's like slow acoustic songs it's a bit dour but it's good <laughs> <laughs> speak my language greg <laughs> yeah um so uh where should we go from there ray uh, we can talk about uh, Basketful of Heads, which is something I didn't spend a lot of time on. So I want to, yeah, it's 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 pretty great, but I don't have mega deep thoughts on it because I only just read it today. But I, I'm really keen to see what you have to say because my my entry point is that it's written by Joe Hill, and that was the reason I picked it up. Um, so yeah, dive dive in. What, what Basket full of heads. So this is like the new <laughs> Joe Hill book, uh, Basketful of Heads. And this is, um, it's like, it's the first issue in a pop-up um, comic label that DC are doing. Like, it's within DC Black Label. You've got Hill House Comics, mm-hmm. in which Joe Hill is overseeing um, this line of horror comics within DC Black Label. Um, and they're all kind of like, from what I gather so far, they're all kind of like six issue, seven issue runs. So that's kind of cool. Um, and I got a kind of like a um, a preview, but a preview booklet for this actually, a freebie preview thing, which I'll talk about in a bit. Which has got like little bits of previews of each sto- like couple of the the books in the line on there um so this is uh basketball heads written by joe lil uh joe hill even sorry art by uh leo match uh leo max colors by dave stewart and lettered by darren bennett um i should actually give you the oh uh it also includes sea dogs which was written by joe hill um art by dan mcdade and uh, colors by john callis and letters by wes abbott so it has like a bonus story in the back which is going to run throughout the rest of the line so you you kind of have to like pick up the rest of the comics to get the sea dog's tail as well um so this was cool and it had this kind of like video nasty horror vibe that i dig so as an opener it's fantastic 
Um, it's part of Joe Hill's pop-up label at DC Comics, and i got to tell you, it's a strong start. Um, I actually picked up a freebie sampler at my LCS, which has a preview for this book and a couple of the others in the line. I'm excited for these stories. Um, I am a fan of Joe Hill's work, and Lock and Key was my in with his stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, And what this book does well, that all video nasty revenge tales do well, is it exploits your empathy. It shows you good people doing good things. And it shows you bad things happening to those good people. Or it will show you bad things happening to those good people <laughs> in the next one. Um, if there's one thing that still sets me on edge in horror stories, actually, it's the house invasion angle. Um, mm. Like the opening of Lock and Key. With the house invasion um, and what happens to Nina Locke. Um, I think for me, the house invasion angle is the most sickening and disturbing thing. Because like the idea of people invading a place of safety and comfort for you and doing unspeakable things and violating the sanctity and perverting the very idea in your head that you hold that the four walls around you are the safest space imaginable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've made that your safe space and someone's going to come in there and do the things that you have not like, just, just do nightmarish things. And it's just horrible. And I love the setup here and the premise. And I really wish the first issue went further than it did. Cause it's a painful, painful cliffhanger. 100% with you there. <laughs> yeah. um, the art, it has this great simplicity and warmth while also carrying a definite air of realism. It's just enough realism to make it pop with the lines being simple and sparse. Uh, the colour work is what brings the magic with the haziness over it. So it's like this haziness, um, like because it is the end of summer. So it's like this haziness with retro echoes in the warm tones that make it feel kind of like of the time that the story is set mm-hmm. and this this slow build that hooks you in is the slow build that hooks you in and that's that's what i love um also the bonus story sea dogs this is also super cool it's two tales for the price of one and a definite nod to the horror stories evolved the art in sea dogs is wonderfully detailed and gleefully visceral bloodthirsty so it's like the savageness bleeding out of every open wound of a page um it, it has this like innate savageness about it. it like even like everyone's got like this kind of like uh, smile with bared teeth and things like that and it just looks savage and 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 you know like raw and every page is an open wound and like every panel yeah, is an open wound and even in the twisted smile of the intelligence officer like it's just there like war is savage werewolves are savage beasts and this comic by its very nature is also a savage beast yeah it's like the the violence that we are withheld from in uh, basket full of heads like the thing that's promised and will likely happen in the next issue we're given we're given that catharsis immediately in sea dogs i think yes yeah yeah um which is it's it's a horrible trick to play really because it is i want i want it from the first one but i'm also like i do i'm curious about what sea dogs is doing too and it's almost like a gut punch because it starts with violence in yeah. this like horrible disgusting way yeah exactly and and this is a um it's a werewolf story uh set during the american war of independence which i really like um mm-hmm. and you've got this kind of like sort of black ops team of werewolves sent to carry out messy assassinations to cause horror and spread fear among the british soldiers it's like shock tactics and my one criticism is that i have to buy all the other comics in the line to get the full sea dog story <laughs> which it is fucking clever. <laughs> yeah, it's super clever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and I was probably going to buy them anyway, but that's not the point. Because they all seem to be short runs. Like, um, Basketful Heads will only be seven issues long. And it'll make for a mighty good trade once it's collected, I think. Mm. Uh, what I'll do, actually, because I didn't really tell you what the book was actually about. I just uh, described it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the blurb for Basketful of Heads. The rain lashes the grassy dunes of Brody Island, and seagulls scream above the bay. A slender figure in a raincoat carries a large wicker basket, which looks like it might be full of melons, covered by a bloodstained scrap of the American flag. This is the story of June Branch, a young woman trapped with four cunning criminals who have snatched her boyfriend for deranged reasons of their own. Now she must fight for her life. With the help of an impossible 8th century Viking axe that can pass through a man's neck in a single swipe and leave the severed head still conscious and capable of supernatural speech. Each disembodied head has a malevolent story of its own to tell, and it isn't long before June finds herself in a desperate struggle to hack through their lies and manipulations, racing to save the man she loves before time runs out. Plus, uh, in this book, uh, is a premiere chapter of the backup story, Sea Dogs, which sails across all the Hill House comics titles. It's really annoying that I can't get the second part of Sea Dogs in the second issue of Basketful of Heads that I have to buy Dole, the, the, the next comic. But I mean, I'm, I'm not... I think I'm only mad about the fact that it's forcing me to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to buy these anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, I, I, I don't have a great deal more to add to um, Basketful of Heads on top of what you've already said. The one thing I will say, or a few things I will say, okay, so it's very reminiscent of some of my favorite, like, 70s slasher films. It reminds me a lot of um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, the thing you said about its its mood and tone and, like, the suffused colors of the summer and the era that it's from, which is, like, uh, early 80s. I think that's very reminiscent of those kind of movies. Um, I think the opening is amazing. I, I forget which comic we talked about recently, which had a really strong, like, cold open, but that's exactly what this book is doing. It has a fantastic cold open that sets up the premise and sets up the um, the tone of, like, the supernatural aspects of this world and has this great thing where it has somebody asking the question, what you got there in that basket? And then the next page is a splash page of basket full of heads. Like, it's a, it's a really great... Um, like drawing tactic and I, I really like that i love the premise like you said of the, the supernatural aspects of the yeah. axe that she she finds in her possession and that irritating but also like uh, really tantalizing tease about how this comic ends and the promise of the at least the next one um i'm really drawn in and yeah i i, I think this is really interesting stuff and i'm always here for whatever joe hill does exactly and that uh, splash page you're talking about with basketful of heads on it, on the mm. white page, I want that on a t-shirt because it looks like a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a great t-shirt. It does It does look like a really good t-shirt design. And it also, <clears throat> it's, it's got like this kind of like tattoo flash thing going on. So, I mean, I like it. I, I would get that on a t-shirt, massively get that on a t-shirt. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the other books in this line. Like this, uh, this sampler I picked up, it's got um, previews of... Uh, another couple of comics in the line. So it's got a preview of the Dollhouse. Um, and The Dollhouse uh, family. Right? Yeah, the Dollhouse family, that's it, yeah. And uh, the Lolo Woods. Mm. Um, and the Dollhouse family, actually, um, I'm, I'm excited about this one. This one sounds pretty cool. Um, this one's very, very, very lock and key, actually, from the premise, from what I'm getting from the for couple of pages that I get treated to in here. Um, and 
uh it has this very nice art style as well this very kind of like uh it's realism and it's like um watercolored um like you're looking at uh an old you know like when you look at an old uh, an old children's book with the illustrations mm. yeah which which I think really works very well for this type of story yeah, and we we talked about the Lolo Woods last time. You said it's, it reminded you of an album cover that you liked. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, I re- I, that one looks really interesting. Where it's like this this pair of kids yeah. on the uh, like a mossy, overgrown skull of I guess a tiger or some sort of some sort of other predatory animal. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, the art style in this is quite. Um, it's got some quite. It's got like quite bold lines and uh, quite loose in the low in the uh preview of the lolo woods that i'm getting here and it's it's pretty cool mm-hmm. and the premise for that sounds pretty nice too i mean all of these sound really good mm-hmm. so um you know what we'll be talking about on ace comicals for the next few months <laughs> <Horror comic>. <laughs> yeah <laughs> at least one mm-hmm. um and uh yeah i guess onwards from there uh i should tell you about the other thing i read for halloween what was that uh, that was um, Count Crowley, Reluctant Monster Hunter. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is this, Craig? <laughs> okay, so this is Count Crowley, Reluctant Monster Hunter, and this is written by uh, David Dasmarkian, art by Lucas Kettner, colours by Lauren F, and uh, letters by Frank uh, Svetovic. So, I'll give you the uh, the... Straight away, I'll just go in with the blurb. I mean, we talked about this on the pull list, and I love the cover for this. Straight away, the cover's fantastic, because it's it's like a nod to old horror comics in the way that it's like this, the art style of the cover, like, painted with, like, the... Um, I don't know, it just has that horror poster, horror movie vibe going on. You know, like those old painted horror posters? It reminds me of uh, one of those old painted movie horror posters. Yeah, like, that's what I'm talking about, you... yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That kind of pulpy vibe. Yeah, and I love yeah. it. So, aspiring reporter Jerry Bartman is furious when she's demoted to hosting the nightly creature feature at her small town TV station. But Jerry quickly learns that there is more to horror hosting than just introducing bad B-movies. Her first night in the costume of her missing predecessor, Count Crowley, finds her face-to-face with a living, breathing werewolf. Or was she just that drunk? So this book has a cl- has the cold open of her face to face with this werewolf outside the studio. Um, they love their cold opens right now, don't they? These comic book creators. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> but anyway, it's really good. Like it has this really good cold open straight in media res, um, and then uh, we are treated to what is the rest of the story, um, and it's as funny as it is sad. Uh, I guess for me, it's like it's quite a sad story at first, and you really do feel for Jerry. But it's also it's also funny. It's, it's framed in a in a comedic way. Um, I love the book and I love the premise. It's it's. Um, I wonder what happened to to, to have to. I, I actually wonder what happened to Jerry to push her to alcoholism, because in this is the, the main character is an alcoholic. Um, and we do get it does get alluded to like something happened to her somewhere before she came back to this town to work um but we don't know exactly what um and it is basically just an awesome punk rock horror show that had me glued from start to finish um 
maybe we'll find out in the later issues actually what it is that pushed her to alcoholism. But it's a great opening book that explains step by step how this woman finds herself in this absurd situation, like in this Count Crowley costume face to face with a werewolf. Um, the art in this book is fantastic and the writing is fun and also very emotive. I love Jerry as a character. Um, she's like this zero fucks journalist who appears to be bored with small town reporting and um, she kind of sets her own gig on fire uh, <laughs> by like just having like a self-destruct moment on like live while she's reporting on a renaissance fair. Um, the cover art is gorgeous on the first issue and the interiors are also fantastic and there's some like really great interesting page layouts that show a car crash of a broadcast from two perspectives as it happens live and through the monitors and um, I get a headache just looking at some of these pages because <laughs> there's so much alcohol and the way, it, which is, it, it, the way in which it is consumed and written into the story it, it does feel like... Um, bad like poison like it just looks queasy mm-hmm. it get it evokes that point that you know the point when you're drunk and you know you're drunk and you feel like shit but you carry on anyway <laughs> all too well <laughs> yeah well that's that's what it makes it like evokes that in you when you're reading it and it makes you feel that and wow, okay. like you know how in some stories that show alcoholism the alcohol still kind of appears desirable in some way like it's still presented in a semi-polished way like whiskey in a nice decanter or good brands etc right um but this gets it right by making it look disgusting and in the way that jerry guzzles down bottle after bottle of bourbon it's all like coming down her lips and stuff out of her face and she drinks cheap wine straight from the box at one point and Hmm. it, it just makes it look like horrible um and the character design of Count Crowley is awesome. And, like, can we just talk about how much I would love the job of horror host? <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that would be one of my dream gigs, like, introducing horror movies on TV. Mm. I could I could do that. I could do that all day long. I could see you doing that, for yeah. sure. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that so much. But, yeah, I mean, she lands my dream gig, and she doesn't like it. But, hey, um, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> But no, um, yeah, she's, it, it's a really good tale. And um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this book. It was, it was a good thing to read at Halloween. And it, it has like uh, all the reverence for classic horror comics. And at the same time, it's this, just this great story that, I don't know, like I could set this to a soundtrack of Blitzkid and Misfits songs quite easily. It's, yeah, I, I, I dig this uh, this book, and um, I can actually see this. Uh, I could actually see this making like a good Netflix show or something, because it kind of has that feel about it that it would it would work well in that kind of environment. Okay. Yeah. But it's it's great, um, and I recommend it to anyone. So yeah, that is uh, Count Crowley, um, the Reluctant Monster Hunter. And that wraps us up for Ace Comicals this week. So I guess we better move on to the uh, the pull list, hadn't we? Yeah, um, go for it. So yeah, so I mean, like this is uh, the first lot of comics here on November the sixth, and these are all things that will be available when this podcast is available. And uh, I kick you off with X Force number one, which is the next in the line of things to come spinning out of Hawks and Parks. 
<laughs> so, the cost of the future isn't cheap. X-Force is the CIA of the mutant world. One half intelligence branch, one half special ops. Beast, Jean Grey and Sage on one side, Wolverine, Kid Omega and Domino on the other. In a perfect world, there would be no need for an X-Force, but we're not there yet. So that sounds kind of cool. Like, I-, I guess, like, this is, like, the next kind of, like, chunk of the puzzle in these different teams and in how Krakoa is being run because Krakoa is a mutant nation and these people, you know, like all mutants are welcome there and they all like, like the, the, the sort of the main mutants that we know from the other X-Men comics seem to be fulfilling these roles within government or in the society of Krakoa. And we have this whole like uh, rich thing explained to us. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm down for this. This sounds interesting. I do like the X Force stuff, but I, this is the thing that I worry about with, um, like, it, they they streamline all these things, and you have House of X, Powers of X, and that would be enough for me. And then this is why I worry that they're diluting it too much. However, it's one of those things I will I will probably eventually read, but secondary to Hox and Pox, I think. Yeah, I mean, this all comes spinning out of, mm. and like. It's basically uh, House of X and Powers of X set it all up. So that's the um, the beginning. Mm. Uh, it give, ushers you into this new world, teaches you about Krakoa and everything else and about why things are the way they are and why things have to happen that way and etc. And then this is basically the day-to-day running of Krakoa split across several books. If you get yeah, it. it's that thing though where it, like what what... Hickman has done is like converged all these different threads into one neat narrative and then they're slowly diverging again and I kind of wish they wouldn't diverge but I understand why they do because there's so many stories to tell but for just for my mental sake please just keep it simple (laughs) (laughs) I I see the appeal of this it's pretty simple right now Ray Mm. I I need to get on it before it gets too (laughs) complicated again I know Uh, the next one on my list is Undiscovered Country Hmm. Um, now this is a new image book And um, in this special oversized first issue, readers will journey into the near future and an unknown nation that was once the United States of America. A land that's become shrouded in mystery after walling itself off from the rest of the world without explanation over 30 years ago. When a team seeking a cure for a global pandemic breaches US borders, they quickly find themselves in a struggle to survive in this strange and deadly lost continent. This is written by... uh, Scott Snyder and Charles Saul. Um, premise sounds pretty cool. Um, I've seen a lot of buzz about this actually on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's got quite a uh, quite a pedigree in some of the people involved in it, and um, I'd be interested to see where this goes. So it's something that I will, you know, tentatively check out because it sounds new and interesting. Yeah, I actually caught some of the variant covers for this. That's what caught my eye. But there's one by uh, Tom Whalen, which looks fantastic. I'll, I'll send a link to that in the show notes. But just this flat, cartoony style of these um, interesting, strange, mythical creatures that are being ridden. Um, looks kind of like uh, like a flat, modern um, Mad Max aesthetic. It looks very interesting. Yeah. So, I'll, yeah. yeah, some of it looks very cool. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how this is. I mean, it's it's like this post-apocalypse stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm 
I'm into this. Um, after that, I've got Legion of Superheroes number one, which was something that I uh, picked up from the DC offerings. Now, kind of, it, like it's like a jumping on point for the 31st century, if you like. So, welcome to the 31st century. Inspired by the acts of and lessons learned from the greatest heroes of all time, the Legion of Superheroes have gathered together to stop a galaxy from repeating its past mistakes. The greatest lineup of heroes in comic book history return with new, fresh, and reader-friendly stories. Um, and this is uh, Brian Michael Bendis doing the Legion of Superheroes. So this is like um, the DC. Fu- this is the the future of the, the DC far future, basically the far future of the DC world. Um, and it's just interesting because it's a hopping on point um, to hear some tales about some classic characters. Uh, we've got Lock and Key Dog Days, which was something I'm quite excited about. Now, this is like another another book, like another one shot, I think, in the lot. I hope it's a one shot within the Lock and Key world. Um, so, two, oh, two new stories by creators Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez, Nailed It and Dog Days, plus a behind the scenes tease of the coming TV series and a five page preview of an all new series by Hill and artist Martin Simmons, too. So, yeah, I'm 100% in for this. Anything well, yeah. lock and key. Yeah, and the cover looks great. Have you seen it? Yeah, with the the dog like diving after a key. Yeah. So yeah. like <laughs> more more key stuff, more key house, more weird happenings. I'm I'm 100% in for this. But it also looks quite playful and colorful, which which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So nailed it and dog days are you two tales. I'm I'm hoping that one of them is a silent story about a dog and i'm hoping that it's silent panels and it's a dog's adventure with a key that sounds amazing i would be so into that yeah that's what i'm hoping for Mm. that's that's my my what i want from this whether we get it or not it's a whole other thing (laughs) but i i just is that a corgi on the front i think it is isn't it oh i wouldn't know (laughs) but the, the dog looks cute but terrifying in the same in the same moment yeah because it's all warped and cartoony and it's underwater but it's got like this kind of like corgi-ish look about it so like maybe maybe we're gonna get a cute lock and key story i mean is that possible <laughs> yeah there was some cuteness in the original lock and key run yeah, yeah but it was definitely. it was like cuteness tainted with black mold <laughs> you know it had, <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see it had, where it goes right had some dirt around it you know mm. It wasn't straight up cuteness, but yeah. Uh, so everything number three is also out this week. Uh, we also have a book called The Crone, which is a um, a dark horse comic, and uh, this is kind of interesting. Um, so the sword savior and champion of men, once known as Bloody Bliss, is now nothing more than a reclusive old crone. Does she have the strength to answer the call for one last adventure? Only Dennis Culver. And Justin Greenwood, um, know for sure, in this story that is equal parts Unforgiven and Xena the Warrior Princess. Mm. So it's like this old lady who's like a bit Andy. <laughs> a bit Andy with a sword. <laughs> uh, comes out of retirement to uh, hack and slash some unknown threat, I believe. But yeah, I mean, like I'm, I this this just looks interesting to me just because just of the premise alone and the cover, so... I like me some fantasy stories as well. So that that's something that piques my interest. Uh, also, there's one called Heist. Um, 
Heist is a vault comic. And this looks cool because it's kind of like this sci-fi thing and it's this old school sci-fi thing. And I am all over it. I'm all over stuff like this. So uh, this is heist number one. Welcome to planet heist. It's the cutthroat capital of the entire nearing system, home to billions of the worst men and women in the galaxy. The pangalactic government has no idea what to do with the planet, but conman Glenn Breld and his band of thieves know exactly what to do with heist. They're going to steal it. It's an Ocean's Eleven in space, brought to you by writer Paul Tobin, Calder and Bandit, and uh, Aruna Sushini of The Replacer. The only minds crazy enough to steal an entire world. So, uh, yeah, y- these guys are going to, like, steal a planet. <laughs> <laughs> if you're down with that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I- I'm down with that. I mean, have you seen the cover? I haven't, no. It's It's beautiful. <laughs> Um, in fact, what I will do is I will show you. Oh, no, I just found it. It's interesting. It's not my, it's not my kind of style. It harkens to an age that I'm not a huge fan of. Um, well, but yeah, like, I'm interested in the premise. You don't like that Flash Gordon original, um, what's it stuff? Buck Rogersy type. Yeah, not really. Uh, that doesn't. That's not my idea of like interesting, cool. But you know, I, the premise sounds really cool, and the the yeah. background of that cover image where it's like a a, a clockwork planet with a like a, a chunky mechanical dial on it looks really funky. Yeah, I think that's like a safe thing, isn't it? Like you know, yeah, like, it's meant yeah. to be a safe. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I like. I just. I do rather enjoy the campiness of like this, like you know. Um, this Flash Gordon style sci-fi, this like Book Rogersy type stuff, and mm. like I, I find it quite endearing in in some ways. I quite like that type of sci-fi. I like the the kind of air it has. I don't know. It's just me. Mm. It's fun, is what it is, and people get to wear these outlandish space costumes. <laughs> Um, and yeah, that wraps us up for November 6th. So moving on to November the 13th, we've got the Batman's oh, Grave number hang on, two. Hang on, hang on, hang oh. on. Wait, wait, I've got one. I've got one You've for got November one. 6th. You've got one. Uh, go, yeah, I do. Go. So um, apart from Lock and Key Dog Days and everything number three that you mentioned, uh, I also noticed that there is a Genlock uh, comic coming out. That's by DC Comics. Um, so Genlock is a, uh, was a cartoon on Rooster Teeth that came out, I think it's either earlier this year or late last year, but it's the one that has um, some really good voice talent in it. It's got Michael B. Jordan, Dakota Fanning, Maisie Williams, um, Koichi Yamadera, uh, who else? David Tennant. Um, it's a really interesting, like, Voltron slash, like, general um, funky mech anime style to it. Uh, so if I can get some more of that before the next season comes out, then that sounds great. So that'll be out on November 6th as well. Yeah. Yes. Um <clears throat> I've not watched anything on Rooster Teeth yet, you know. It's the only thing I've ever watched on Rooster Teeth. I don't think there's much else on it that yeah. really appeals to me. I think Genlock was sold to me on the strength of the people involved, and right. it turned yeah. out to be a really interesting story. It's really bad, but my TV diet consists primarily of Netflix these days. Like, I don't like have um, a Now TV account anymore or anything like mm. that, and I don't watch a lot of TV anyways. I mean, like... I guess I'm watching TV again now because Riverdale and Bojack's are back. But yeah, Bojack is my latest thing, yeah. and the yeah. Good Place, and yeah. um, the Watchmen 
the TV series, which I would like to talk about at some point, but I will do that when Leon's back. Yes, I, I need to watch that as well. Mm. This is this is my gripe with not having a Now TV account. <laughs> but <laughs> not particularly wanting a Now TV account either, because there's only something I want to watch once in a blue moon. Yeah, I feel you with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, November 13th, we've got The Batman's Grave number two, which we talked about the first one on the previous episode to this, where we have Marv on as a guest. Go listen. There's a lot of bat love on that on that sh- uh, on that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we got Tales from the Dark Multiverse: Blackest Night, which is uh, well, I'll tell you. What could be blacker than the Blackest Night? I don't know, DC. You tell me. From the pages of Dark Knight's Metal comes a Dark Multiverse retelling the green retelling of the Green Lantern event that changed the DC universe forever. Only this time. The Black Lanterns win. Now, 23 days after the apocalypse, witness the rise of Sinestro as the Limbo Lantern. Trapped between life and death as a white and black lantern, Sinestro seeks to save the, seeks to save the universe or end his miserable life once and for all. Joined by Dove, Lobo and Mr. Miracle, the last living beings in the universe will put everything on the line to give their world one final chance. So that sounds rather interesting. The fact that you can be both a Black Lantern and a White Lantern at the same time. I have no idea what the Green Lantern stuff is, but I've always wanted to get into it. So this does sound funky. Um, like with all of the other yeah. uh, the other ones you've talked about in this run, it's, it sounds really interesting. So, I mean, like, you basically, like, obviously different Lantern colours, different emotions, different affinities to different things, like red is anger, etc. Obviously, um, yeah. Black is death, white is life. So okay, it, you don't have to explain it right now, but I will. Yeah. I, I'm interested in picking this up. Yeah, you should. It's great. Mm. Looks great. Sounds great. I'm <laughs> in for it. Um, so yeah, the Limbo Lantern. Uh, also, Moonshine's back. Moonshine number thirteen. We talked a lot. Of, well, I talked about Moonshine on my onesome uh, in a previous episode. Uh, we've got Punisher Soviet number one, which. I quite like the idea of. This is Garth Ennis writing Punisher again. Mm. You love me some Punisher. So Garth Ennis, co-creator of The Boys and the Preacher, is back at Marvel and writing the Punisher again, this time with Art Phenom, uh, Jason Burroughs of Moon Knight 303 and Crossed at his side. A dozen Russian mobsters lie dead at the Punisher's feet and he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger. If you know Frank Castle, you know this doesn't necessarily set his mind at ease. Who is in New York City decimating the Russian mob? And can it be long before they come into conflict with Frank? So, yeah, I'm on for that. Some uh, some Max Comics Punisher Soviet. Down with that. Um, I'm thinking because it's called Punisher Soviet that it is actually set during the time of the uh, the Soviet Union. We also have Family Tree number one. Uh, now, Family Tree... This is a, I think this is an image book, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the cover for this looks interesting because you've got this, this person lying down and their hair all kind of splayed out, but then their hair becomes roots and then the roots turn red. So, uh, in the family tree, an eight year old girl literally begins to transform into a tree. Her single mum, troubled brother and possibly insane grandfather 
embark on a bizarre and heart-wrenching odyssey across the back roads of America in a desperate search for a cure to her horrifying transformation before it's too late. And this is Jeff Lemire. So what do you think about that, Ray? Yeah, this would have been my one pick for that week. Um, just that was like a really interesting premise, I think. Girl Becomes Tree. Mm-hmm. I'm down with that. That's why it's on my list. Um, it just sounds quite... Uh, I mean, it's like... Um, it's got that horror fantasy edge to it, which I kind of like. Uh, the next one of the Hill House line is out next, uh, that week as well, actually, on November 13th, which is the Dollhouse family, number one, which uh, I had the preview for, and it is looking great. So the premise for this... Um, on Alice's sixth birthday, her dying great-aunt sent her the birthday gift she didn't know she always wanted. A big, beautiful 19th-century dollhouse, complete with a family of antique dolls. In no time at all, the dollhouse isn't just Alice's favourite toy, it's her whole world. And soon, young Alice learns she can enter the house to visit a new group of friends, straight out of a heartwarming children's novel, The Dollhouse Family. But while the dollhouse family welcome her with open arms, the real world, her family life, is becoming much more complicated. And deep within the dollhouse's twisting halls, the black room awaits, with an offer to Alice. The house can fix all this, the black room says. All she has to do is say the words. So this is uh, Mike Carey and Peter Gross uh, of uh, Lucifer and the Unwritten. They're joined by Vince Locke of the Sandman books to bring the most horrifying vision yet to Hill House comics. A story that echoes into centuries past, into Alice's tormented future and into the beating heart of madness that makes up our world, literally. Plus in chapter two, uh, plus you get chapter two of Sea Dogs. And um, bloodthirsty colonial lycanthropes prepare to gut the Royal Navy from within. <laughs> so, yay, sea dogs. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this is the one that had like a lot of lock and key vibe when I read the uh, the preview for it. So um, mm. I don't know how you how do you feel about that, Ray? Yeah, that one sounds good. Like you said, because it has the most lock and key vibe, obviously with a, a dollhouse that you get to dive into, which is a an aspect of um, of the original lock and key. Yeah, sounds cool. I like the artwork in it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also got uh, Morbius number one, which is... Uh, that's Morbius the Vampire. Morbius you may know uh, from various run-ins he's had with Spider-Man. Um, Morbius was in the Spider-Man uh, cartoon as well from way back. If you ever watched any of the Spider-Man cartoon, Ray. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep. Morbius. Yep. So Morbius is the living vampire, or is he more? <laughs> For years, Nobel Prize-winning biologist Michael Morbius has been struggling to cure himself of his vampirism, and now, for the first time in years, one may be within reach. But the path to it is littered with dangers and worse. So this is like an all-new, ongoing series of Morbius. So he has his own book, and I'm down for that. Uh, Giving it a quick Google, it looks like there's a Jared Leto Morbius movie in the works. Is that right? Ugh. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't. This could be nonsense. I've just given it a very quick Google just to like try and find an image of Morbius, and it was the first thing that popped up was Marvel's Morbius 2020 announced in April of this year. Hmm. I don't, I don't. I don't want that. I don't want Jared Leto as Morbius. I play a good Morbius, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> I don't want Jared Leto in anything anymore. Well, yes, that's what I was <laughs> avoiding saying. But yeah. <laughs> well, actually, no, that's unfair because I bet in the you know in the right role, 
He could be well, good. Yeah, maybe. Apparently, this is a real thing. It says twenty twenty, but I think, we'll... I think I think we're all just we're all just still pretty raw from his Joker. So <laughs> you're telling me, yeah. <laughs> anyway, on to the last book that I have on my list for November thirteenth. This is another one on Vault Comics. This is Black Stars Above number one, and this looks really interesting because it has like the cover has this kind of like um, sepia etching thing going on, like an old. I know, like, etching on an old... You know, like an old book? Hmm. You see these old books? Like, with... a, like a woodcut kind of print. Yeah, wood print. yeah. Mm. that kind of thing. Um, the year is 1887, and a storm brews. A young fur trapper flees her overbearing family, only to get lost in a dreamlike winter wilderness that harbours a cosmic threat. The fur trade is dead, and the nation is changing, yet... Eulalie um, Dubois... Eulalie Dubois? has spent her entire life tending to her family's trapline, isolated from the world. A chance at freedom comes in the form of a parcel that needs delivering to a nameless town north of the wilderness. Little does Eulalie know, something sinister hides in those woods, and it yearns for what she has. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this speaks my language. Cosmic threat. Woods. Strange parcels. <laughs> <laughs> Cosmic threat, woods. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I also like this cover is really cool. I do like the design of it, and I know that the um, like it's it shows a woman stood in front of a forest, and there's like this this eerie supernatural like uh, space event happening above her. But to me, I, like because I saw the thumbnail first, it just looks a bit like a hairy belly button. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like it kind of puts me off a little. Yeah, but I'm. I'm I can seeing... look past that. I can look past it. I'll give it a go. I'm seeing something beautifully Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course uh, you are. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it's something beautifully Lovecraftian. I, I, I'm I, seeing a belly button, so... Belly buttons can be Lovecraftian. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Cyclopean belly buttons. No, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, um, I, uh, yeah, I'm down for this book, 100%. I'm down for every book on my list. I, I just feel like I... I have to tell you that I am at the end of the blurb for each one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why it's on your pull list, Greg. <laughs> yeah, I know that's that's my pull list. So uh-huh. that's the uh, that's the pull list for this uh, this week's Ace Comicals. So that has been Ace Comicals number seventy five. Um, belated Happy Halloween. Hmm. Uh, you can find us at www.acecomicals.com, which is kind of the hub for everything we do, where you will find us on Twitter under Ace Comicals, Facebook under Ace Comicals, Instagram under Ace Comicals. Uh, you can find us to listen to us in all good play, all good podcast places, all good podcasty places like Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Castro, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, which is my personal favourite, Stitcher and TuneIn. Um, you can find me on Twitter under at Bato, that's B-A-T-T-O-U, and you can get in touch with us on Twitter, you can DM me, you can DM the Ace Comicals account, you can email us, you can email us at acecomicals at gmail.com. Uh, Ray, where can we find you? On Twitter at Monke, so that's at M-O-O-N-K-E-H. So, that has been Ace Comicals number 75, so that's Ace Comicals, over and out.